Well, good morning, church. Um, as Pastor David said, my name is Ty, and uh, I'm a pastoral trainer here. I'm really glad that he um, told you that this is not a Mother's Day message, because after we get in this passage, I think some of you mothers would be really angry at me. <laughs> and so <clears throat> just know it wasn't planned. David said, this is what you have to preach. So that's where we are. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have them over here on the hub. We got large print. We got small print. I mean, if you like to try hard, that's totally cool. Um, they're all ESV, and we'll also have it up here on the screen, so whatever works best for you. But um, I had this whole elaborate intro ready to, to share with you guys, and David was asking me about it at our staff meeting, and I shared some of the jokes I was going to say. And I think out of his shepherd's heart to protect you guys, he's like, why don't I just introduce you so we can just forget about all those jokes? And I'm like, ah, oh, man. But I'm going to throw some in there anyways. So um, just a few things about me. Um, I am a pastoral trainer here. I am 28. Uh, let's see what I wrote down. I'm actually engaged, so you can definitely be praying for her. She's a very godly, beautiful, giving woman. She's everything that I'm not, so I'm still asking myself, how did I do it? Um, a lot of prayer, a lot of, I was going to say works, but that's a terrible joke, so no, just a lot of prayer. It's good. Um, I'm also the pastoral trainee working with the youth. So I have a, a team of leaders around me and they are so awesome. I literally just get to show up and pretend like I'm in charge and they do so great. And the students love them. I love them. It's just awesome. So those are a few things about me. Um, I'm humbled to, read, uh, to teach you guys from the text. I've, as I've been studying it, I've just had such a burden for you guys. I love you guys. I know I'm new here, but you guys are my church family and I can't thank you enough for uh, giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. But um, we're going to be in John chapter 4, verse 1 through 15, so let's just jump in. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his, uh, his disciples, he left Judea and departed from Galilee. Uh, departed again for Galilee. Man, I cannot read. This is great. It's 9 o'clock. Cut me some slack. We'll be good. Um, And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you, knew that, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to, uh, or have to come here to draw water. God, right now, I just thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for this passage that just teaches us so much about you. God, I thank you that you came down in flesh and revealed yourself to us. I pray as we study your word that we would have open hearts and open ears to what you have to say. I pray that those of us that don't know you yet, today would be the day that we come to salvation, that we begin that relationship with you. Those of us that do, I pray that we be more conformed to the image of your son. I pray all this in your name. Amen. 
Man, I hope I'm, you guys aren't like seeing up my blouse right now because that's just super weird, but it feels good, so all right. Um, sorry, ADD. Um, how many of you guys, real quick, how many of you guys are like born and raised Skagit Valley? A good amount of you. How many of you guys are not? You're like me. you like, we're adopted in. All right, cool. So I um, am from the city of Portland where all the hipsters are from. I don't know if you've seen Portlandia, but it exaggerates maybe like that much. It's super true. People do wonder where their chickens come from before they eat it. It's, it's weird. But um, I grew up in the north side of Portland. And so um, where I was born, I was actually a minority as a Caucasian. So um, it was about, I think they, it was like 60, when I did, the, when I did some statistics, it was about 60, 70% African-American. And so um, growing up with a single mom and a little sister and me, um, it, was, it was interesting. It was different than anywhere else that I've moved to. It was a lot of fun, but being a typical um, boy with just a mom and no dad, I had some weird anger issues. I was diagnosed with ADD when I was little. I found out later in life that I uh, actually have minor bipolar disorder. So those things combined with a loving mom that maybe loved me too much uh, just did not work very well. And so I got in a lot of trouble. I didn't get along with a lot of kids around me. And I was a big fan of WWE wrestling. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but basically it's those guys that fake fight and jump off things. And when you're like nine or 10, you think that it's real. And then your mom tells you it's not real and you start crying like, it, like she's telling you Santa's not real. And you're like, it is real. They're really fighting. It's true. Um, and so I have a point to this. Don't worry. I'm not just going off on a tangent here. But um, me growing up, watching that, being around that, being into Power Rangers and stuff, I was really into fighting. And so... Um, I would actually do like backyard wrestling with my friends. I actually got a bad back where I had to go to the hospital and see a chiropractor when I was like eight or nine. So that tells you what kind of weird stuff I did. Um, I would go to, we were, we were really poor. My mom didn't get a chance to graduate high school because she had me, surprise, surprise. And so um, I would actually go to martial arts, sign up for a free month, do the free month and then go find another one so I could do another free month. So I had white belts from all over the place. It was awesome. When I became a teenager, I still had these anger issues. I didn't know what to do. I put a lot of holes in her wall. Um, my mom was really concerned, and so she had the bright idea. Um, well, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if it was a bright idea or not, but she's like, hey, you have a lot of anger issues. Let's sign you up for martial arts that they teach in Korea to the special forces and see how that goes. Like, I don't know if that's the parenting move I would have made, but it, it worked. So she put me in there, and first day, you know, I'm a lot taller than a lot of the kids around me. I'm really into it, so I'm kind of a bully pushing them down like, I have white belts from like four different, you know, karate dojos. I'm pretty cool. I know like two kicks. Let's do this. And uh, the guy that was in charge started noticing these habits my very first day. And so he's like, hey, Ty, um, I noticed that, you know, you're really passionate about fighting. You, know, you seem to have some skills. We usually make people wait a couple months before they do the sparring. But why don't, why don't you come do some sparring with us? And I'm like, oh, man, like I got this. I'm going to jump off the top ropes. It's going to be great. And so I put on all the gear. I get going and I, you know, put my hands up. I'm ready to go. And I just get whooped. Now, when I mean whooped, I don't mean like he got a lucky punch and I mean like it was embarrassing how bad I was. I was exceptionally good at being bad at fighting. It's crazy. I thought that this was just like, you know, bad luck or something like that, but he actually pulled me aside the next week and was like, hey man, like I just, I noticed that you had some, some pride issues and some stuff, so I just wanted to show you there's a lot of room to grow. And so me in that mindset, having that happen to me, I didn't, I didn't understand that there's a purpose to it. I thought that he was just kind of chaotic and letting stuff happen, but he actually had a specific purpose for what, for what he did. I tell you that story to tell you this. A lot of us, when we read the first part 
of chapter four where Jesus is just leaving. It can look like Jesus is kind of being reactionary. Like Jesus just hears the Pharisees say some stuff. And so he's like, you know what? Let's just get out of town. But can I tell you, Jesus is very purposeful in what he does. A lot of times we, we don't see what he's up to. We don't see what he's doing. But there's no time in scripture that, that I've found that anyone that studied the Bible has found where Jesus just kind of goes off on a whim or just lets stuff happen to him. And in fact, it was either last week or the week before when we were in John chapter three in verses 34 and 35, it says, um, John had just wrote, he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. These are amazing words because it shows us that Jesus had the spirit immeasurably. He had full access to the Holy Spirit. He had full access to God. So when we see this, we understand that Jesus sees the whole picture. Jesus doesn't respond out of fear. Jesus doesn't respond out of ignorance. Jesus sees everything. Jesus knows everything. When we begin chapter four, we are told that Jesus left Judea um, in the south and headed towards Galilee to the north and that he went through Samaria. Now, when John tells us this, it raised for me some questions. It says that when Jesus heard that the Pharisees knew some things and that Jesus was baptizing more and making more disciples than John, although Jesus, it says Jesus was never, uh, was never baptizing, but his disciples were, um, it made me wonder, Jesus, why did you leave? I came up with four things that I think would, could really help us understand why Jesus may have left. Because here's the thing. When we read in chapter three, it shows us that Jesus doesn't do things by accident, that Jesus isn't afraid, and that when Jesus does things, it's very purposeful. In fact, it also goes on to say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 18. So he's not leaving Judea because he's afraid. I think out of the four reasons, number one could be this. It's a matter of timing. The Pharisees may have caused some trouble and tried to get rid of Jesus, but it says that his hour had not yet come. As we, study, uh, as we studied chapters one through three, we see a lot of times that there's some, some trouble or Jesus having interactions with people and he'd often say, I'm not gonna do this or I'm gonna leave because my time has not yet come. We can see in this that Jesus has a very good understanding of the timeline for God's plan for his life. So out of this, I think one of the options could be that Jesus understood that it wasn't time for him yet. It wasn't his hour. So the best decision to be made was to move on. I think secondly, Jesus could have left because they could have used Jesus' popularity to discredit John the Baptist. John the Baptist was getting towards the end of his ministry, but it wasn't over yet. And so Jesus, knowing this, may have left just so that John could have moved on, so didn't no one blame John of being a fraud or not being as good. Thirdly, I think the Pharisees could have looked at Jesus and John and seen that they were two different movements and tried to discredit them both, saying they're splintering, they're not going in the same direction, therefore, they're just fads, no worries, there's no stable foundation. The fourth one, I think, is kind of supplemental because I think it, it can encompass all three of these ideas. And that's that Jesus had a divine impulse, that he has an appointment in Samaria. God had a 
divine plan to meet with this woman at the well. It says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, but we know geographically that as Jesus is moving, you can go around. I don't know about you guys, but when I want to go to Mount Vernon, I don't, I don't have to go through Burlington. It may be easier. It may be the, the most direct path, but I don't have to. There's many ways to get to places geographically. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so when it says that Jesus has to go through Samaria, it's not saying that there's no other way, that there's a mountain on both sides, but it's saying that Jesus felt, felt in his heart that he had to go, that he had a divine appointment. We see because of what it says in John three thirty five that Jesus isn't impulsive, that Jesus isn't pulled away, but that Jesus has a plan, that he's not controlled by circumstances, but he controls the circumstances. And so when Jesus is going to this well to meet with this woman, we understand that this is God directing. I think something that we can find comfort in is that Jesus has multiple purposes, millions upon millions. How many of you guys know and have been a part of a situation where you think you know what God's doing and you come to find out that he's doing more than just one thing in that circumstance? I can think of tons of times that um, I'm going through a hard circumstance and I'm praying, God, just teach me patience or teach me this or do this. What I'm, what I'm not understanding is that there's people seeing that circumstances in me and God's speaking to them through it. So many times in our life we can get singularly focused. I don't know about you, but I'm a guy and what that usually means is I can only do one thing at a time well. If I'm focused on something and someone comes and tries to talk to me about something else, I'm lost, I'm gone. Either I'm gonna pretend like I know what you're saying and totally ignore you, or I'm gonna not do a very good job at this so I can do whatever you're asking me to do. But God and Jesus aren't the same as me. You should be happy to know that. But God and Jesus can do multiple things and do one thing and have multiple reasons to do it, multiple purposes, multiple fruit coming out of it. So I wanna draw your attention to this. When God's doing things, it has a purpose. And when Jesus does things, he's graciously purposeful in them. You don't have to be afraid that when you're going through circumstances, that when things are happening, that Jesus is just like, huh, this is a cool experiment. Let's see what happens. But that when you go through circumstances, you can trust your Savior because he is ultimately and graciously purposeful in our lives. The second, the second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is Gracious, uh, graciously relational. The, ma- the main relationship we see, not the only one, but the main one, is between Jesus and the woman at the well. We know from going on further in Scripture after this for next week that she had some relationship issues. She had five husbands. She was with a sixth guy. And she just she had a hard time holding key relationships, especially, it seems like, with males. But Jesus, in his interaction with her, wanted to show her that you're not going to find what you're looking for through all these outside relationships. Your relationship with me is going to bring that fullness, that gracious relationship. She talks about when Jesus interacts with her that Jews avoid Samaritans. In fact, in verse 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is that that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Don Carson gives this description of Samaritans and Jews. After the, after the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, in 722 through 21 BC, they deported all Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners. So they pushed 
all the Jews out of their homeland brought in a lot of foreigners who intermarried with the surviving, with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. So the Jews that stayed, the foreigners came in and they started intermingling. After the exile, um, Jews, Jews returning to their homeland viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but also as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. About 400 BC, the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount uh, Gerizim. That's so similar today when we really break it down. These are people that have the same Old Testament as the Jews, but started mixing a lot of other cultures in them. How many of you guys today have heard of relative truth? Anybody? I think if we were honest, if we've spoken to anyone outside the doors, we've probably heard of relative truth. And that looks kind of like this. Hey man, that may be true for you, that may be working for you, but that's not true for me. And so as Jesus is having this interaction with this woman, you need to understand that she has some ideas of God, but it's mixed in with all this Greek and Babylonian religion and philosophy. And so when Jesus is interacting with her, he's interacting with a lot of the people that we'd be interacting with today too. People that are saying, yeah, I believe in God, but I also need to read my daily horoscope. Or I also like um, this inspirational speaker. Or, you know, God is good, but there's other things that are just as good. God is one of the plans. Jesus is here to shatter that, to change that. We also see that Samaritans and Jews don't mingle because of racial tension. How many of you guys know that racial tension is true still today? 50 or so years ago, um, it was pretty common for towns to have two drinking fountains. I thought this was crazy. I didn't, I had read this in a book and I actually had a hard time believing it, so I studied it some more. But um, they would actually have a drinking fountain for white people and they'd have a drinking fountain for any other, any other race, basically colored people. And they'd say, hey, you drink, we drink from over here and you drink from over there. There's a separation. I couldn't imagine what that'd be like just having your child with you and having to explain why that is or what that means or what's going on. And so what's interesting about the situation is when Jesus comes to this well, this well is a Samaritan well. It means that with Jews believing that Samaritans are unclean, not only is the land that they're on unclean, not only is any of the food unclean, the people are unclean, but this well specifically was unclean. It'd be wrong, it would be bad and wrong in the Jewish culture to drink from this well, to, to even be touched by something touching the well. So like even the bucket, if Jesus was touched by the bucket, by Jewish law, he'd have to go and do the special cleansing and all things. That's how serious they were about this separation. And so you need to understand, and I say all this, because when Jesus had an interaction with this woman, he was being kind of a rebel. He was saying, it's, it's inappropriate for me to have a relation with you according to the custom and the culture, but I love you so much that I'm gonna pursue you beyond what's culturally acceptable. Notice in this that before Jesus even meets with this woman, he sends all his disciples away. They went to get some food. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, actually, I can give you an example even from last night. I was hungry, Rachel was hungry, and I was like, guess what? We both don't have to go. You can run to Taco Bell and I can stay home. It'll be awesome. 
And so when Jesus sends his disciples to go get food, I know you guys are all judging me now. You probably should. Um, she's awesome to me. But um, when Jesus is sending his disciples, not all of them have to go. So we can see that when Jesus is sending everyone but him, he's being very purposeful in that. Not only that, but Jesus is laying next to the well. So he's making it basically where if this woman wants to get water from this well, she can't just like go around him or anything. She has to be right where he's at. Thirdly, the reason why we understand that this is a divine appointment is because Jesus is at the well in a time when most people wouldn't be by the well. It's hot. It's the middle of the day. It's kind of like today. When it comes noon, I'm going to be inside. I don't like heat. I like the cold. And so in the Middle East, I've never been there, but so what I've heard, in the Middle East, when it gets around noon, especially at this time of year, it's hot. People don't like to be outside. They didn't have air conditioning or these awesome fans like we do. And so Jews would, and Samaritans would primarily go in the beginning of the day and at the end of the night to get their water when it was cool. And so when this woman was coming in the middle of the day, it's showing you how desperate she is for water because, um, and how pushed out of culture and how unacceptable even in her own culture she is because if she's going at a time where it's hard, where it's difficult to avoid people, that's showing you just how extreme the circumstance is. So when Jesus is laying against the well, when he sent everyone else away, he's being very purposeful and very, very intentional, showing that he knows that this woman's going to be there. In this woman's language, she uses the words, um, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But if we were to translate that closer to today, it, said, it means something like Jews don't, and Samaritans don't use things together. So not only would they not just hang out, not only would they not open businesses or own things together, but it's saying, back to what I was talking about, if a Samaritan used a spoon, a Jew would not use that spoon, and vice versa. They had no dealings. It was, there was full separation. And so when Jesus is pursuing this woman, not only... Is he pursuing her against all culture, against all racial tension, but he's also pursuing her in the midst of her sin. She was an adulterer. It says that she, later on we find out that she had five husbands and she's with her sixth man. And so Jesus is pursuing this unacceptable relationship because God has a heart for people. Jesus is so graciously relational that in everything he's intentional and he designs things so that he can have relationship with us. It says in John 3.16 that God sent his son to the world to not condemn the world, but that they might be saved through him, that they might come to know him through Jesus. He broke centuries-old taboo. He sat and sought a woman alone. I don't know, I've, I'm sure many of you that have gone to church have heard this passage preached before. And I don't know about you, but I came from a theological group that when they taught this passage, they taught it out of evangelism. So this is Jesus showing us how to reach other people. But I think if we really understood what Jesus was doing here, we'd understand that teaching this scripture as an evangelistic, hey, this is how you reach people outside of the church, is not only wrong, but it's detrimental, and it's also almost sinful, because we need to understand we're not the hero of the story. We're not Jesus. We're not the, the God-hearted, Holy Spirit-filled person reaching out to others, but we are the filthy woman. That God goes against what's right. God goes against what's 
taboo. God goes against what makes sense to come reach us. It's so easy for us to look at this woman and compare it and be like, well, you know, I don't, I don't have five husbands. I'm not with a sixth man. I, I'm not an adulterer. I don't, um, I'm not shamed for my culture. I'm not shunned. I don't do this. Or even today we might be like, well, you know, I don't smoke crack. I don't murder people. So comparatively, I'm pretty good. But if we truly understand the gospel and what this is teaching, we understand something called total depravity. That means that we're all sinful that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and that Jesus, by pursuing us, is doing something that doesn't make sense. I have a hard time forgiving someone that just looks at me weird sometimes. I'm like, oh, dude, that person looked at me weird. They're done. We're done. Or, you know, sometimes I'll lend someone 10 bucks and you say, oh, you don't have to pay me back. It's not a big deal, but secretly you're holding it in. You're like, they owe me 10 bucks. I'm gonna get them. It's so silly to me to think of how big a deal I make of things, and then to truly understand what God forgave me for. If we begin to understand the gospel and understand what Jesus went through and what Jesus does to reach us, we'd have, if we fully grasp that, we should have no trouble forgiving anyone for anything. Because we understand that we're not good. In fact, Jesus says no one's good, but God is good. And so we don't come to this story realizing that this is our way of saving others, but this is Jesus' way of saving us. How many of you guys have like a favorite childhood movie? Anyone? I'm a youth pastor, so can I tell you this is, I'm ashamed, this is yes. You guys have a favorite childhood movie? I'm not asking you to shout it out, don't worry, you're fine. When I, uh, when I was a kid, my favorite movie of all time was a movie called Space Jam. Now, uh, for those of you that are, either didn't parent someone from my generation or from my generation, it's a movie about the Looney Tunes playing basketball against space aliens and recruiting Michael Jordan to save the day. It was awesome. Um, Michael starts to play basketball with them. He finds out that the Looney Tunes are really terrible. It, like, they cut the game at halftime. They're all sitting in the locker room and whining because they're losing by like 100 points. It's ridiculous. And Michael's trying to give him a pep talk and it's not working. He's like, you know, you're, you're good. Like you can do this. And Bugs Bunny um, takes this water from a faucet, fills it up and just writes Michael's secret stuff. I actually think I have it right there on the screen. And he lies and convinces the Looney Tunes that if they drink this, that it'll magically make them as good a player as Michael Jordan. And so they drink it, they go back into the game, and they do exceptionally well for a while. But after a while, it starts to fade, and they start to realize that it was all a sham, and that they, don't, um, that they actually don't have the skills of Michael Jordan. Some of us, when we come up, I have a point to this, don't worry. Some of us, when we come up to God, we're looking for this. We come to God saying, God, I want your secret stuff. I want to know a hundred ways to make a million dollars. I want to know how I can have perfect relationship, have no strain in my life, be at perfect health, get all these crazy cool things. I want to know how I can make God answer every prayer. And ultimately what we're saying is, God, I want to know how to put you in my debt. God, I want to know how many good things I have to do before I can say, God, you owe me this. If, we, if we're really honest with ourselves, that's what we're doing. Saying, God, I see that you're blessing this person, but did I tell you, I prayed twice as long as them this week. So where's, where's some of that blessing for me? Or God, um, I see that, that my child walked away from you and their child didn't, but I parented a lot better than they did. So what's going on here? And that sounds funny, but if we're honest with ourselves, we have a tendency to do that. I don't know about you, but even with my study of the scripture, even when I know in my brain that 
that that's wrong and I shouldn't do it. When I hit hard times, the first thing I think of is, God, what did I do wrong? God, why is this happening to me? God, what are you doing? And I completely, in that moment, lose my focus on Jesus. In Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 18, it says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is what it's telling you. Every good thing, to quote my friend Jaron here from a couple weeks ago, every good thing you have in your life, you're afraid of losing because God gave it to you in the first place. Everything we hold on to, every struggle that we have when we're saying, God, it's hard for me to trust you with this, God's like, that's funny because I just gave that to you. If we really understood it that way, that Jesus is top of the line, that everything else that's mentioned is created by him, for him, to bring glory to him, we wouldn't have as hard a time as we do now. If we really understood that it's not about what Jesus gives us, but it's about Jesus giving himself. Before I let you go, and we're almost there, I promise, my last point is this. Jesus is graciously superior. This woman begins to understand that Jesus in this, in this passage is, is leading her somewhere, and she's starting to say, wait, do you, have a prior, uh, do you have a superiority complex? Are you saying that you're better than the founder of both our religions? And in this, Jesus is saying, yeah, I am. Jesus isn't just claiming to be superior in this passage, but I want you to understand the reason why I threw gracious in this because Jesus isn't just a bully saying I'm better than you, but Jesus is saying I'm what you need. I'm superior for you. I am your salvation. And so in this, Jesus, after he tells her, yes, I am superior to Jacob, he tells her why. And he offers her the living water. He says the water that you drink from this well, the water that Jacob, that tradition, that your religion, that your life is giving you is gonna make you thirsty again. If I were in a different uh, theological circle, I might try to be clever and say that she's thirsty with a you and that, you know, she has five husbands and is on her six, so she's swiping because she's thirsty and she's looking for the man to fix her life. I guess I just told you that anyways, but whatever. But the point I'm trying to make is she's looking for completion in every other aspect of her life. And Jesus is saying, I'm the answer. Hello, over here. That's me. And she's completely missing it, as we're going to see. So Jesus offers her this water, and in it, he tells her that it's superior in five different ways. Number one, it's a gift from God. In verse 10, it says, if you knew the gift of God. Number two, it's living water. It says in verse 10, he would have given you living water. Number three, if you drink it, you will never thirst again. In verse 14, it says, whoever drinks this water I will give him will never thirst again. I know, I seem like I'm being smart, but I'm actually just quoting Jesus. It's really good. Number four, the water becomes a spring, a well of water. The water that, in verse 14, it says, the water that I will give you will become a spring of water. That's why you never get thirsty again. Not because one drink is enough, but because one true drink produces a well for your eternal drinks. And number five, the water gives eternal life. Verse 14, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is telling her, not only am I superior, but you should be excited because my superiority is your salvation. That everything you're looking for, uh, to, to sound cheesy, that, that God-sized hole in your heart, everything you're trying to fill in with it is never gonna sustain you because it's meant for me. I hate puzzles. I don't know about you guys. Some of my family loves puzzles. 
And I knew I was done when we worked at this like a thousand piece puzzle. We had it almost all put together and we were missing one single piece. And we looked in the box and it wasn't there and it was brand new. So it wasn't like it got lost or anything. It was brand new and it was missing. And I just looked at my mom and was like, this is why I don't do puzzles. And then I flipped the table over and got a banana split. It was awesome. I don't know. But I'm telling you all this to say that it, as cliche as it sounds, all of us are looking and desiring some, some, uh, some sort of completion, some sort of relationship, some sort of destiny. We go out and we think, if I can just get um, more social media presence, if I can just make more money, if I can just have a perfect marriage, if I can just be completely healthy, if I can just get fit. We look for, for meaning in all these things when Jesus is saying none of that's truly gonna bring you satisfaction. He's saying that the only thing that's gonna bring you satisfaction is relationship with me. And so to end, I just want to combat something real quick. And um, it, the passage ends on kind of a dark note. I think we have it up here. She says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I might not, uh, might not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So my text, and I'm glad that we have following text because my text kind of ends on a bad note. Because what she's saying is here is like, oh, you have magical water that'll solve all my problems. I'll take that. And so in our minds, what this, what this would mean for us, what she's thinking is physical needs. Like if I drink this water, I never have to drink again. That, that's really convenient for me. I, don't have, I can take time to do other things. I don't have to walk here in the middle of the day. If you can take care of my needs, yeah, I'll, I'll drink your water. That sounds good. And so many of us come to God with the same mindset. Oh, if I come to church, my life's gonna go better. Oh, yeah, I'll take that. God, if I, if I pray to you, my relationships are gonna go better. I'll take that. Oh, if I, if I tithe, all of a sudden I'm gonna make more money. I'll, I'll do that. And so we come to Jesus saying, God, I will take your blessing as long as you're not a part of it. And so what, I'm, what I want to tell you guys is that it's not about what Christ gives you, but it's about Christ giving himself. Christ is the ultimate gift. Nothing's better. And so when we follow Jesus, we need to understand that it's not a guarantee that we're going to be wealthy. It's not a guarantee that we're going to be healthy. Um, it, we're never going to be able to put God into our debt, the message of scripture and the gospel isn't that in following Jesus, everything's gonna be going great, but that as things go wrong, whether it be good or bad circumstances in our life, it doesn't matter because Jesus is enough. It's not that everything's gonna be okay. And forgive me, but it's so frustrating to me to hear how popular the prosperity gospel is. Because if we really took the time to read our Bibles, to study church history, we'd understand that that's a false. And so just like the scripture says, we need to follow Jesus, not in for what he can give you, but to understand that Jesus is preeminent, top of the line, top of the change. And so if we really understood what that mindset was, it's not Christianity, but it's something entirely different. And honestly, it's a heresy that if it was 200 years ago, me and Jaron would get together and burn you on a stake. It's that bad. And I know that sounds intense, but I mean it to sound that intense. If we're going after God for what he can give us and not for himself, we've missed the whole point. Sorry for throwing you in there, Jaron. I know you're like, don't do this to me, man. Don't do this. And so it's a ridiculous notion because just understand this, Jesus is enough. He's really enough. And if Jesus didn't answer a single one of our prayers, a single one of my prayers from now, he'd still be loving, he'd still be gracious, he'd still be more than I could ever deserve. And so I want to leave you with, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I want to leave you with this question. Are you seeking Christ or are you seeking what you believe he can give you?
God, right now, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for this time together. I, I thank you for this hard word, but God, that, that is so needed. I pray as we study scripture, as we come here today, that we wouldn't come seeking to be fulfilled ourselves, but we would come to glorify you. We'd understand that our ultimate satisfaction comes from seeing you in all your glory. Just as John Piper says, you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. God, I thank you for all this. In your name I pray, amen.